Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cocaine Cowboys, the deadly rise of Ireland's drug lords in association with Crime World. The live show is on sale now. We're coming to Belfast Waterfront Studio on Saturday, April 27th. Check mcd.ie or venue for ticket details. So say if you were a member of the IRA and you wanted to do an interview of some sort with an academic, you would then have to ask permission from the leadership of your organisation and they would either say yes or no. In this case, these people had all fallen out, so they were all just, you know, doing this and what they thought at the time was in good faith. But with most of the loyalist tapes, go ahead, talk if you want. Do not incriminate anyone. And do not talk about anything that you haven't been convicted of. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs, and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. Loyalist paramilitary Winston Winky Ray died this week after his wife Liz passed away, denying justice to the families of his victims, innocent Catholic men John Devine and John O'Hara. Ray leaves behind a legacy of violence and death, along with a lengthy interview confessing to his crimes, which formed part of the infamous Boston tapes. Today, I'm talking to Belfast Telegraph crime correspondent Alison Morris about Ray and the contents of those tapes, which she will be revealing in a series of dispatches in the coming weeks. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Alison, the veteran loyalist Winston Winky Ray has died this week. Um, so we're going to have a little chat about him, who he is, a bit of his background and the fact he was actually facing charges. Yeah, unusually so, because the legacy of um, Northern Ireland's troubles is something that is completely unresolved. And there are very few confession or con- um, convictions sorry, currently in train at this point in time. There are very few people going through the courts. He was actually one of them, although his case had been postponed in 2021 due to some, um, it was due to COVID originally and then due to some legal arguments that were being made. He wasn't in the, the greatest of health anyway. I think he would have been about 72 at the time of his death. But he was a very significant character in loyalism at one point, And he was indeed facing charges connected to the murders of two completely 
innocent Catholic men who were shot in the early 1990s. So I'm looking at a picture of him and he definitely does not look too healthy. This was obviously taken recently. Um, he's photographed at the Northern Ireland Supporters Club on the Belfast Shankill Road. Um, yeah, not a healthy man. Now, his wife died just a week earlier, Liz Ray, on November 23rd. And I think, was he unable to attend the funeral? He wasn't He wasn't at the funeral. And she herself, Liz Ray, her maiden name is Spence. And she's actually the daughter of Gusty Spence, the you know notorious loyalist leader, the man who read the loyalist ceasefire statements. So um, she came from, you know, those sort of loyalist circles herself. But no, he's been in he's been in ill health anyway for quite some time. The mm. but that wasn't solely down to the delay in this conviction, which I think has been going through the court since about 2017 or something. Um, it's been going on for for a very long time. Um, but the the argument that the defence were making was that the tapes couldn't that were using a confession. So. To go right back to the beginning. Yeah, exactly. Let's start at the beginning with him. To go back to the beginning, Winston Ray was um, a member of the Red Hand Commando, which was a, a faction, if you sort of like, of the UVF. And at one time, um, they would have claimed killings carried out by the UVF or would have carried out killings themselves. Um, and they also worked in quite closely with other, other loyalists as well. So he was a, a Red Hand Commando leader. He, uh, way back, we're going back now, probably maybe 15 years ago, he made um, an, took part in an oral history project, which turned out to be very controversial. He spoke about his life and loyalism and he confessed um, during that time to his participation in a number of crimes, um, including the um, organising the murders of two Catholic men. One was uh, a man called John Devine, who was murdered in July 1989. And the other one was a taxi driver called John O'Hara, who was murdered in April 1991. He was also charged with threatening to kill the LVF leader, Billy Wright. So he talks quite freely on these tapes because he was wrongly told that these that this tape would remain secret until after his death and then would be released as part of this oral history project. That was utter nonsense. There was no such assurance what the, the college, it was Boston College in America, that were storing them. Boston College had told the project directors that they could only protect the participants to the extent of American law. Um, this wasn't fed them down to the other people who took part in it. So we've already had what was the um, attempted prosecution of a guy named Diver Bell, who was a, a former IRA leader. He ended up because he had dementia. There was a, a sort of trial of facts took place in his absence based on his, his confession um, as part of this oral history project, these sort of terror tapes. And Winston Ray was also then being prosecuted for what he said in these tapes. The defence argument was, well, look, if he thought he was making these things, they would never be heard. You know, they shouldn't be admissible in evidence. And also during the trial of Ivor Bell, portions of his tape were played and they were um, unable to rely on them because the interviewer was asking very lean questions, you know, questions that were times longer than the answers. And there were leading and directed um, and clearly trying to sort of sway the, the person being interviewed in a certain direction. The loyalist tape, so there was a Republican aspect to this oral history project and there was a loyalist aspect to it. The loyalist aspect to it, there was a different interviewer. So the argument in the prosecution was, look, this was done under different circumstances. These tapes should be allowed. And in these tapes, he confessed to helping plot 
to organise the deaths, the murders of these two men, which were just horrific. One was a, a guy worked in a, a coal yard, his coal man, he delivered coal. He was shot dead in front of his teenage son while he was sitting watching a, a football match. Um, and the other one, who was John Harb's taxi driver, he was lured through a bogus call. So there was a call to the depot, booked a taxi, he drove along. And so it was completely random. It was whoever showed up was going to be killed. And he was shot. Um, and all of this, including lots of other really explosive information, is on Winston Ray's sort of tarotip confession. And those tapes, like what sort of people agreed to do those interviews? Because, I mean, I'm just trying to think how I would ever convince somebody to tell me all their secrets like that or those kind of, you know, you know yourself, you, you speak to criminals and they always have this kind of problem that they don't want to incriminate themselves. And it's always a bit difficult. So like what sort of people and why did they get involved in that? Were they actually genuinely hoping to leave a legacy or were they people who were tended to be boastful? They were completely misled. They were told that the the tapes, that there was an amnesty for these tapes and that they wouldn't be allowed to be released till after their death. You know, famously, um, Dolores Price made one of these tapes. You know, they were, they were just completely told. And then the project organisers then were shown during the case to get access to the tapes that they were well aware that they could only be protected. They actually had different contracts than the, the people who they asked to participate in it had. On the Republican side, the uh, people who took part in it were people who I would you would consider to be off message, let's say, people who had fallen out with Sinn Féin, people who um, would be considered probably to be on the sort of dissident um, end of the, the Republican sort of family. A lot of them were ex-prisoners. Um, and a lot of those tapes concentrated on very specific events that were obviously of interest to the interviewer. A lot of them centred around the murder of um, Jane McConville and people were asked leading questions, including one fellow who I think was about 13 or something at the time of Jane McConville's death. You know, it was, uh, the, the, the thing was a shambles, it really was. It's, it's now held up as a, an example of hard not to do oral history, you know, when universities actually teach hard not to do it based on this, you know, shambles of the loyalist tapes were different. They were done yeah. by a different interviewer, but again, on the same way, they were told that they had amnesty. But this is interesting because this is what I was told, was that because the people who took part in the Republican part of it were off message, they didn't have to ask anyone for permission in order to do these tapes. So say if you were a member of the IRA and you wanted to do an interview of some sort with an academic, you would then have to ask permission from the leadership of your organisation. and they would either say yes or no. In this case, these people had all fallen out. So they were all just, you know, doing this and what they thought at the time was in good faith. Um, but with most of the loyalist tapes, and especially that was like all of the UDA um, and UVF tapes, when they had went, because I spoke to a UDA man who took part in it and he asked his leadership and they said, go ahead, talk if you want, do not incriminate anyone and do not talk about anything that you haven't been convicted of already. So, you know, they said to me when the police went looking for the tapes, they can have mine if they want. There's bloody nothing on it, you know, because I just said, mm-hmm. I only talked about events that had already been convicted of uh, or other things about Harrogate and loyalism or whatever. Um, now, th- you can you can see how this played out because there was a book that was made based on these tapes. Mm-hmm. Um, one was based on Brendan Hughes' tape confession, famous, you know, RA man, former hunger strike. His yeah. was allegations and information about um, events that had happened during the Troubles, unsolved murders, all sorts of other things. And the other half of that book was David Irvine, so the, the famous leader of the PEP, former UVF prisoner. 
it's like night and day because the David Irvine's one doesn't incriminate anyone. He just basically talks to himself and his childhood and stuff. So you can see that a lot of them had to ask then the permission. They were told not to incriminate anyone, and so they didn't. Winston mm. Ray would have been the leader of the Red Hand Commando. We didn't really have anyone that he would have had to ask. And his tapes, which the Belfast Telegraph have now got sight of, um, ah, are, yeah, are full of, of all sorts of allegations and, and quite remarkable things. So as you know, as I'm speaking to you, I'm sitting writing a story which will give information about how the um how he said the, the murder of John O'Hara came around. So if you look back, John O'Hara was murdered on the 17th of April, 1991. At midnight that night, the UVF made, um, or the Combined Loyalist Military Command made a statement saying that they were going to call a temporary ceasefire. In the confession that Winston Ray makes, he mm. says that a UDA guy who was part of the Combined Loyalist Military Command said, this statement's going to be made at midnight. Um, this guy was not in favour of the ceasefire. He was not in favour of the peace process. So he says to Winston Ray, get out and do something, you know, fucking kill somebody, basically, to try and derail this, to get it before the midnight deadline. So this poor guy was basically killed in a rush to try and get somebody before the midnight deadline. And then also, obviously, it destabilised the peace talks that were going on in the in the background. So it served two purposes. Um, and that was one of the things that would have come out had this court case been ahead. The court case hasn't been ahead. A lot of people, including I'm assuming the people who... Uh, don't want to drag back up again what happened with these with these tapes and um, we'll be hoping that they died with Winston Ray but we wouldn't mm. be allowing that you know so we have managed to, to get a hold of a lot of the, the transcripts of that. You've had sort of maybe perhaps you've had sight of some transcripts rather than hearing the interviews. So we could we I believe we'll be able to get some of the oral interviews but I have seen the transcripts so it's all been transcribed out and it's word for word and it's quite explosive some of the stuff he also talks about target information that they were being given by the security forces during that time in the 80s to set people up and how the information that we were given there. Um, and there's lots of other stuff in it as well, which will, you know, once we go through the whole lot, we'll be able to, to put in. So, uh, you know, this court case, I don't think this court case was ever going to go ahead. First of all, this man was in ill health. He was never going to make it to court. Second of all, there were so much legal arguments that were delaying the process. Um, and then more importantly, I suppose, the legacy legislation that is going to be passed, which is going to end all convictions, would have had a role in it as well, despite the fact that it was already ongoing. So the, the the two families have been left after waiting all of this time, hoping they were going to get justice. You know, we always say justice delayed is justice denied. And in this case, it really has been denied. But what we can do, you know, as journalists, is we can make sure that the information that he told is put out into the public domain. So what would have came um, been said in those court cases you know, that a lot of people will be hoping died with Winston Ray. Um, I think that they should know that it definitely has not. So you're going to be running that uh, in the Belfast Telegraph, I presume, over a couple of days or, you know, however long it stretches. Sounds like that's a massive scoop and that'll be online as well on the belltel.com, isn't it? The bell, belltel. Yeah. But what I wanted to ask you was, do you get any sense of the kind of person he was when he's talking like or when he's giving these interviews is he boastful about what he's done is he sort of proud of it that he's leaving this legacy behind he's completely unrepentant in terms of it now some of the people that he names are people that he obviously later on remember loyalism then fractured quite badly um after the ceasefires and there were several loyalist feuds after the good friday agreement as well 
Winston Ray was, you know, lived on in the Shankill, and after the feud, his house was one of the ones that was attacked. He moved then to County Down. I think he was living in Grimsport when he died. Um, and you can tell there's a bitterness that surrounds a lot of that. And in terms of the UVFLBF split and what happened then with Billy Wright, um, and he talks about that. And so you can see there's a lot of bitterness. And this is where, like you and I have spoke about this before, it's almost like, although he didn't know it at the time when he was making these tapes, it is like that sort of assisting offenders, you know, informant type thing where you, you know, increase the role of people you dislike in events. So there's a bit mm-hmm. of that clearly going on. But completely unrepentant, you know, was very proud of what he had done. And I also know people, you know, who had spoken to him in his later years as he was approaching um, this court case and they would have said the same thing. You know, he he was completely unrepentant about everything that had gone on, um, despite the fact that, you know, and not that taking anyone's life is ever justified. But I repeat that these people, you know, he did know, um, he didn't know one of the men. Um, because through his work in, in the coal yard, and that's how he identified him as a Catholic and targeted him. But um, John O'Hara was was again just two innocent working men out working for their families. Um, John O'Hara just a random taxi driver. I mean, there was no target in here. It, was, it wasn't even any suspicion that these people might have been in the IRA or anything. It was just they're Catholics. They're easy targets. They'll you know they'll do. He just sounds like a man with a black heart, like, you know, somebody. And and how did he live out his life? Did he will he be celebrated as such, you know, with the funerals of these guys? Um, you know, what they did, is it celebrated anymore? Or he will have a huge funeral, I imagine, and I imagine it will have um quite a few sort of senior loyalist paramilitaries will definitely attend that funeral. And also I would assume it would have the trappings of loyalism, albeit the police are starting to take keep a, a closer look at those type of funerals. Um, but yeah, we you would I would imagine that he will be buried as if, you know, they, they bury these people as if they're soldiers, you know, rather than just terrorists or paramilitaries. And that's the kind of there's a lot of sort of militarized trappings to the funerals mm. when they do take place. So yeah, he would he would be, I suppose, from the older ones that he would have been associated with, many of them are gone already. But you would have a lot of those sort of senior figures there. And then quite a few of younger sort of loyalists who, you know, have a sort of romanticised version of what went on during the Troubles. They never lived mm. straight. Um, who look up to, to, you know, people like Winston Ray. So, yeah, I would imagine it would be, it would be quite a spectacle. It's interesting in the week that's in it, you say that the police are going to sort of take a closer look at these, you know, what goes on at these funerals. You, you saw what happened in Dublin this week. There was a, yeah. uh, Brandon Ledgewood was buried and there was guys on motorbikes, you know, speeding along the pavements and like, um, you know, remembering him in the church as a drug user and dealer, you know, ce- it's celebrating that. And then later uh, at the afters, the a big fight broke out and two people were hospitalised. I mean, Extraordinary, but the police were there. But they did they 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 do this very gently, gently th- th- style of policing. Um, you know, it's probably not legal to speed along a pavement, uh, a pedestrian pavement, on a motorbike, and yet they sort of don't move in. The thinking behind it is, you know, it's sort of going to cause probably more trouble than it's worth. But um, it's interesting. Are they going to allow these things continue? Or can they move in a little bit on them? Or the the, P, the PSNA um called it least worst option placing, so better to let it go ahead. And what they'll do is they will put you know Land Rovers for cameras, or they will put police officers for cameras, and they'll film it. 
and then maybe go back and look at prosecutions afterwards. They don't interfere or charge on funerals. And I mean, you can tell why funerals are very sensitive. We have something that went on here for a long time during the, the 80s, mid and the 90s, it's called the Battle of the Funerals, where, you know, when there was senior IRA people who had been killed and they would come out with the trappings with the flag and the berry and the gloves and the coffin, the RUC would sweep in and try and remove them or try and arrest the people that were doing the colour party. And they caused, you know, days of rats. There was occasions when, you know, funerals just didn't go ahead. They were postponed and postponed. And every day it was postponed. And the next day, another 2,000 people showed up. And the next day, another 2,000 people showed up until they became, you know, it was, it was, um, as at one stage, it was the, the funerals were almost as big a story as, as the murders or the killings themselves. Um, and we had seen that right up until you got to the, um, the, the funerals of the Gibraltar Three. It was only around then that we seen with the, the people who were killed in Milltown, there was a very hands-off approach from the police until obviously mm. two um, soldiers drove into the cortege. Maybe that's a podcast for another day. But they, we have seen those those paramilitary-style funerals happen more and more because these people are getting to a certain age, let's face it. They're dying on a fairly regular basis. Some of them leave words saying, look, I don't want any of that. I just want, you know, a normal funeral with my family. And some of them leave words saying, you know, I want the whole thing. I want the whole shebang and, and some of them think you think about this some of their relatives as in sons and grandsons might have them went on to join paramilitary organizations themselves and so we also see you know them then maybe a different organization organizing the funeral we're still seeing shots being fired over coffins or over pictures of people um and then we're seeing the sort of trappings in terms of the color parties i would say Winston Ray will definitely have a loyalist funeral of sorts at what degree that'll be to will really be down to his surviving family. You know, he does have children, but his, as I said, his wife died last week. They've had two bereavements in a very short space of time. It will really come down to what they want and what his wishes were. I'm assuming this man has been on, he's been unwell for a very long time. He may well have left instructions as to how he wants his funeral to go ahead. But, you know, I'm writing about this and we know that the focus is on them. And I was thinking this morning, and I have spoke to one of the, the relatives of one of the people who, um, he had been charged with um, helping to plot and to murder. And, you know, you think of them today, you know, they've never got any justice. Mm. They lost a loved one and, you know, um, they lost a, a very, both, you know, loving fathers, really hardworking people, the breadwinners in their family as well. You know, they're left in dire circumstances. There's a lot of, of questions that arise about what people knew about this prior to this, if these killings could have been prevented. And, Obviously, Winston Ray talks a lot about what we would consider now collusion as its security forces given him names and addresses and target and information of people. Um, and they're just left now hand dry. I mean, this has been going on for years and their hopes mm. were built up. And they really did think that there was a chance that they would get a prosecution. Even if he was prosecuted, it, it, the most he could serve in jail was two years because of the Good Friday Agreement anyway. But, you know, at least it would have got something and they would have been had their day in court and feel that their loved one was vindicated. A lot of this too is about clearing people's names because after these killings, these groups would put out statements claiming that they'd killed the senior Republican or they'd killed, in most cases, it was just complete random murders. So, mm. you know, a lot of them are, are trying to, to seek to have their, their loved one's name cleared by this process as well. So I genuinely feel for, for you know, the Divine Anne O'Hara families to, you know, hearing this news, for them, it's completely different than it does for the rest of us because they had still, you know, albeit the hope was fading as time went on, but they still had some hope that they were going to get their day in court and get justice for their, their father. His full name, of course, is Winston Churchill Ray. Uh, his 
parents obviously had high hopes from. It just said another detail too about um, John O'Hara. His wife, at the time of his murder, her husband, that was her second marriage, her previous husband had been murdered by loyalist paramilitaries as well in a sectarian attack. And she had, you know, lost one husband as a really young woman and then mm. had tried to rebuild her life and met this lovely fella, you know, had rebuilt the family and he was murdered in a random sectarian attack as well. You just think of the grief heaped upon grief, heaped upon trauma, you know, and, and how those those people feel. But I mean, these are details, I suppose. You know, I'm sitting here because I'm actually writing this and I have lost lives sitting in front of me, this huge tomb full of, you know, every death that happened during the troubles. And um, there's times I have to stop myself, you know, going down the sort of rabbit hole of it because you start reading about one death and it links to another. And you just think, even as a journalist, and even as someone who was raised here and brought up here, half of these things, I go, I've never heard of this. How did I not know that mm. happened? And, you know, and that's the case where, you know, Mrs. O'Hara, who lost, you know, not one, but was braved uh, and widowed yeah. twice through violence during the troubles. Um, it's horrific, you know, when you think about what they've, they've been through. But, you know, once Ray, his own family will mourn him. I'm sure his friends will mourn him. But right now, I suppose, you know, I think the 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 focus, I suppose, on our sympathy should be on the, the families of his victims. Well, I look forward to reading the those dispatches over the next week or so. And uh, we maybe might even come back and revisit it when you get through them. It sounds really, it sounds really fascinating stuff. Was there finally, was there any suggestion of, did he give any confessions of collusion or? He did. He, he spoke about are the, you know, the, the, the targeting information that went on and also the guy who was in the combined loyalist military command who told him you know, get in before, get something done before midnight, before the ceasefire announcement comes out. Mm-hmm. Um, he then went on, there was that accusation that he had been working for the intelligence agencies at that time. He went on to become quite a close associate of Billy Wright. The UDA ended up expelling him and he left the country. I believe he's living in Coventry or somewhere now as a very old man. But there's all sorts of names in these and um, in these tapes and it'll be really interesting as we sort of work our way through them and, and see how that, that pans out. And you know what, maybe in them is, you know, a step further towards the sort of proving of, of that sort of widespread collusion that went on and maybe that is something that he has left, you know, which he didn't necessarily mean to. I mean, that's it. As I said, there's plenty of people well, we're hoping that this would go to the grave with them, but you know, that's, that's not going to be the case. You know, the confession's there, he made it and, you know, we get access mm. to that and we'll through it line by line. Brilliant. Okay, Alison Morris, thank you very much. No bother. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Clodamini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.